This podcast is brought to you by StormTech. StormTech has been designing award-winning drains that are used worldwide. As an Australian success story, StormTech is the inventor of the linear drain, currently used in thousands of applications across the globe. Used in bathrooms, thresholds, driveways, pools and paved areas, StormTech drains are engineered to solve all residential drainage needs around your home. With seven award-winning grade styles to choose from, StormTech's full range of drains is available in an array of stunning powder-coated colours and electroplated finishes designed to suit any trend or building style. Proud to be Australian inventors, Australian manufacturers and 100% Australian made and owned for over 30 years, all of StormTech's products are watermark certified, which is crucial for building insurance purposes. Sustainability is one of the most important aspects in StormTech's culture. In fact, we take it so seriously that we are the only drainage manufacturer worldwide to achieve Gold Star Green Tag certification. StormTech skilled specialists work closely with specifiers, architects and builders to offer tailored drainage solutions, including bespoke drawings and plans for customised drainage designs for all Australian environments. For more information, go to the StormTech website at www.stormtech.com.au. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, and today we have Professor Oya Demir Bilek, who teaches industrial design and design research methods at the University of New South Wales. She has a PhD in interior architecture and environmental design, a PhD in product design, a master's of science in building design, sorry, building sciences, and a Bachelor of Industrial Design and a Graduate Certificate in um, University Learning and Teaching. As a designer, educator and researcher, Professor Demet Bilek says she cares about the design of accessible and inclusive, meaningful products and better futures for all, especially for older people. Her work addresses the mounting pressure to be more conscious about the products we design and the future that we are creating together. Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Professor Oya Demir Bilek. Did I get that surname right? <laughs> thank you, Branko. Yes, you got it right perfectly. It's thank you for having me. That's okay. You'd be surprised. Uh, can I call you Oya? Is, is that okay? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> You'd be surprised, um, even with my surname, how many how many surnames I get wrong, and and I'm not even talking about non non you know standard ones i'm talking about totally standard surnames i mispronounce so anyway so look um let's start off by by quoting you which is always a good sign <laughs> or, or is it okay a, a couple of years ago you said and I, i'll quote this the process of co-design places value on sustained qualitative research methods as an intensely collaborative approach it can involve years of brainstorming sessions, workshops, journaling, consultations, and other engaging design research activities. The results are products or concepts that are ultimately more meaningful, more accessible, more inclusive, and more sustainable. Okay, can you please explain to me what are sustained qualitative research methods in, in this sort of framework, and what do they look like in terms of designing for disability and or aged care? Yes. So what I meant then is the sustained use of qualitative research methods uh, as opposed to quantitative ones. Okay. So in design research, that's what we use mainly. And this is because qualitative research methods, they are helpful in, in design because they, they help us uncover tacit and latent needs. And they also help us uncover the emotions and the feelings that people are experiencing. 
So yeah, while doing certain activities or while using a certain device. So that's why we do use a lot of qualitative uh, methods. So in terms for designing for disability or aged care, these qualitative research methods would look like uh, collaborative design activities. So where you would have a group of people either with disabilities or older people, and then you would work with them through a range of uh, creative, most of the time, activities. And these could be things such as brainstorming, um, image college, um, sometimes answering five times the same question, because every time they will give a different answer and you can probe. Uh, Role-playing is a great one that I use, uh, co-creation, journaling, etc. So a, a lot of uh, different activities and each activity would be specifically designed for the task you have in hand or, or the things you want to accomplish with your participants. So I can give you uh, one example. Uh, in, in one of the sessions we did with a group of old people, uh, the, 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 the task was to tell a story uh, about something that happened to somebody else, not themselves, to somebody else in the bathroom, and that would have to be a bad story. And uh, they, the, the means for them to then express the story would have to be with little dolls. So they would have to role play with little dolls. And uh, it was very easy for them to come up with the stories and then to tell them because they were not telling the stories themselves. The dolls were telling the stories and it wasn't about themselves. It was about something that happened to somebody else. So the, the emotions were flowing. You could see the things that were happening, even embarrassing things were happening to other people. So these are great ways to capture that kind of information that you, you don't have in quantitative research. That's a very interesting approach, isn't it? To to be actually a you're, you're actually so you're actually measuring sort of a range of feelings, aren't you? Which is an interesting way of, of looking at it because I mean, I mean, make, doing graphs must must be an interesting interesting exercise for you guys. But that is unusual, though. That doesn't, you don't normally do that in, in that in this type of research, do you? Uh, yeah, more and more people are doing it. Okay. Uh, and you don't draw graphs. It's about uh, the, the individual's uh, feelings and emotions and responses. So it's more about the specific quotes that you can get, not about things that you can generalize. So you're trying to uncover insights. You're trying to uncover the latent things that people have in themselves in the sense of you know, they are experts at, at living their lives when you're very old and you can manage through life, you're an expert and you have lots of ways of doing things that when you're asked about it, you don't know you're doing them. But when you are at play doing something else, you can see it happen. So I can see it happen as the researcher and I can catch these moments of insights. You mentioned that repeating things five times. It sounds like what my wife complains about. <laughs> um, I've got to say, you... you I've noticed and some research, but you you spend a lot of time talking about codesign. In fact, you've spoken to us about it a couple of years ago. One fact um, is that co-design thinking can be applied to all systems on different scales. And the fact that in, sorry affect the way that we live, um, to products, environment, systems, services, and experience, which basically what you said earlier. But can you give me a real life, everyday example of this, a practical example? Sure. So as I said, co-design methods involve different groups of stakeholders and especially people that, who are the most affected by, by whatever, you know, the topic at hand is that you're researching. 
So it's about designing with uh, rather than designing for. Um, so because I'm an industrial designer, the kind of research we do always kind of have an implication in, in what you design as a result. So one good example I can give you is uh, public spaces. Um, they are good examples because uh, they, they are at the moment, lots of public spaces are designed in a co-design way with uh, local governments, urban planner, landscape architects, designers, and members of the community all coming together because, you know, the members of the community live in, in that place and they know best. Uh, for what they what they want and really require. So uh, back when co-design originated, that was um, you know in the 1960s and 70s. So it, it was here for a long time. Uh, they they were using kind of maybe less creative methods, perhaps, uh, and more collaborative kind of working together methods. So it was called cooperative design at the time in Scandinavia. Um, and, and they were using it for work, workplace demo, democracy. So to help people really redesign their work environments in, in terms of information technology um, so that you know, the workplace was working best for them. And later when the US picked up the idea of collaborative design, they, they called it participatory design because they found the word collaborative a bit, uh, cooperative a bit different, uh, participatory was more appropriate, people were participating. Uh, and then urban, uh, urban planners and designers starting using it in the 1980s. So this has been around for a while, uh, but the way industrial designers have used it is more creative, of course. And, and that's, we are using um, kind of design methods that we, we translated into design research because design and research are really intertwined. You can't really do any design without doing proper research before. Of course, of course. And my own design, sorry, my own research examples around, uh, would be around specific products like the bathroom uh, environments or bathroom products or kitchen appliances. So that will be the, the, the outcomes people will work towards. Um, what can I say? Oh, and in, in one instance, our co-design participants helped us to design our research. So uh, we presented to them the activities we were intending to do for the research and they helped us, you know, they, um, they gave us very meaningful advice on how, what to change, what not to do. And they also helped us um, in the design of a specific lab. So, and, and this, this method is also apparently used in medical fields where they involve patients to help in research design. And this way they are trying to prevent wasting money on research, you know, that would not create any meaningful benefits for patients. Interesting, so you mentioned bathrooms there, and, and I guess, you know, that, that's a very important area with both disability and also aged care. I mean, I'm having, a, having an, an, uh, a mother who's in her 80s, I know very well, that, you know, um, how important, you know, uh, bathroom design is. Um, but there are there are trends with what you said that there are other trends going on independently in society for example like getting more and more people to live at home and i think more and more older people want to live at home and why wouldn't you um so how does this affect both the design also your your research because it's kind of like you you to me what, what i'm what i'm saying what you're doing is is, is that is that you, you've started off researching about institutions but in fact you're actually researching about society now as a whole are you not yeah yeah yes well uh, the, the trends you're mentioning are about allowing people to age in place 
And when you look at the world population at the moment, uh, it, definitely you can see the aging trend happening. Uh, so in 2017, in Australia, uh, one in seven people were above the age of 65, um, that, and that's 15%. And this number is really expected to increase at 22% by uh, 2056. So it's, it's quite a, a massive increase. And on top of that, uh, the average household size is also decreasing. So people are living more and more alone. And that, that's, that's really impacting <laughs> the research that we are doing because we are doing our research to, to help to support what is coming at us. Um, so as, as we all age, the aim has been to keep us at home as long as possible, you know, um, meaning that we have to survive at home as, as long as possible and being able to do everything. So that also brought all these requirements for um, renovations and remodeling the home so that they are more accessible and easier for, for uh, aging bodies to really manage. And especially the bathroom, because it's one of the most dangerous places. It is. Uh, yeah. It's, just, it's you slip over, you glass everywhere, there's hard surfaces, there's sharp surfaces, there's all sorts of weird and wonderful things. Yeah. What a fun place. Look, uh, to build on what you just said, so, um, and, and in fact, I'll quote you again, because you, you've got some brilliant quotes, so that's why I'm quoting you, I'm not trying to... <laughs> Just uh, get your old words back. They're actually really, really good. But, but I'll just quote you again. The environments people live and work in and the devices and objects they interact with daily have a huge impact on their person experience and extents of ability and disability. Okay, this is especially for older people or people with dexterity, vision, hearing, uh, cognition or mobility issues. There is, yeah. there is, there's, a lot of people. In fact, I've looked it up. Um, there's something like four million people in Australia that are affected by arthritis. Just let's not talk about anything else. And then there's diabetes and MS and back issues. And you know, in the end, um, this adds up to a a lot of people. Okay? There's, a, there's a lot of people there. So, so maybe is it is it is it the 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 way we're classifying with the taxonomy that's the issue here that there's I'm, I'm, I'm trying to work with because is it really about disability design or are we just talking about human design here? <laughs> it's a great question, Branko. Yep. Uh, yes, the numbers are huge and globally estimated numbers of people with disabilities is something like uh, 1.27 billion. Wow. It's, it's, it's large and it, it's uh, one in five people actually. And, and wh why we don't see most of it is because most of disabilities are invisible. Uh, and this includes people, uh, older people and people with a wide range of uh, disabilities that you mentioned. And those people, uh, they have their carers, they have close friends, they have family members that are also affected indirectly by the disability in some way. So you can add a further uh, 2.3 million people like that that are in, indirectly affected by accessibility issues. So yes, actually we need more inclusive design solutions that would work for everyone or, or as many people as possible, ideally for all. Uh, and when you have an inclusive uh, approach to design, you solve an issue for uh, the people who are the most affected and the solutions end up working for everyone. 
and that's where my research is really. So with your research, do you actually involve um, older adults or, or aged people, I'm not, seniors, I'm not sure, sure what the proper term is these days, um, in the co-design of technology to maintain their own well-being and independence? And are the beneficial uh, efforts of, of co-design solutions greater than those reported for non-co-design solutions? Uh, well, for to answer your first question, you said yes, uh, yeah, I do involve older people, uh, depending on the projects that we have. So we had uh, a project quite a few years ago, it started in 2013, and we had a lovely group of older people, uh, seven people, and we worked with them for three years. So we had in total nine or 10 sessions with them, co-design sessions. And uh, we've uh, ended up having a, a good report out of it. Uh, really looking at the bathroom from all sorts of lenses so that we can capture everything we could uh, around their needs uh, and, you know, their requirements, their fears, uh, the emotions. And, and that's quite useful for um, companies manufacturing products for this environment. Are the beneficial effects of co-design mm -hmm. solutions greater than those reported for non-co-design non solutions? That would be hard for me to say, yes, uh, it is different. I, I would not no, but my instinct would be that you do capture real insights when you work closely with the people who are the most affected, uh, rather than trying to investigate them from the back door of some sort, you know, trying to look at some numbers and figures uh, to do maybe a, a survey will tell only so much. <laughs> Uh, a survey will be very limited in what it tells you, whereas, uh, and it will give you a, a lot of quantitative data that can help you generalize certain facts. So you could say, yes, that many people are obese. Yes, that many people are, you know, using their bathroom in such a way. Yes, blah, blah, from, from that quantitative um, data. But in the qualitative aspects, and because you are involving the people in the research, they are part of it, I believe you get more. Uh, and, and the way you get more is um, you do get insights that will not be captured any other way. Plus, you get the buy-in of the people who are involved. You know, all the older people we involved in our sessions, I'm sure they would buy all the products that the company would have manufactured afterwards because they were part of it. They made it happen. That's how they felt. Uh, and also they kind of felt um, important. We listened to them, you know, we were working with them. They, they felt they were working with professors, with PhD students. It's a fantastic thing for them. So the wins are in from many angles, from my perspective. So tell me, what does it, it, the perfect bathroom look like for, I mean, I know this is an audio format, so you can't draw me a picture, but can you describe what, in your mind, what does it look like? Or what should it look like? I mean, in terms of it being designed for, let's say, a person in their 70s who's relatively healthy, but might have a bit of arthritis and, and obviously, you know, age means that we move a little bit slower and, and, and maybe the eyesight's not that great. Yeah, so the perfect bathroom would be really uncluttered. It would be a large space 
because you never know when you, you may need a wheelchair. So large enough for you to you know, spin around, not cluttered so that you, you don't have falling trips or hazards. So in terms of, uh, oh, if first of all, it should look nice. Uh, the things that our older participants always told us is that, you know, uh, what is luxury for some is a necessity for us. And all the examples they were giving us were feeling luxurious, of course, but they do need that extra support. So it should look nice. It should be luxurious, a lot of space. But of course, you should have non-sleeping floors. And you should have uh, an open shower area where you can just enter without a hub. Because, you know, if you have a wheelchair, again, you can't go there. You should have a drain that is not visible. And now they have very nice, invisible, long drains that you can put along the wall. So you only have one angle um, if you use a wheelchair to get in. Your wash basin should be at a level where you can be seated. And the ideal, they say, if you have a double wash basin, one is at a seating level and one is for a standing level, you capture, you know, everyone and everyone can use it comfortably. And for the fixture and fit, uh, all the fittings, you have to have things that people can operate easily with one hand if needed. Uh, and they can also perhaps even control them without their hands, what that would be preferable, depending on how much money they can afford. So with sensors, great, because today there are products like this already. Uh, and also they should be support everywhere. So without looking like a hospital, uh, the environment should be supportive. So you should be able to hold on to everything. <laughs> Your um, towel rack should double up as a, you know, uh, handbar. The same with your shower bar and everything. So the lighting level on top of that should be, of course, considered because it should be diffused. No glare. Glare apparently is one of the reasons where people sometimes fall. They have vision-related uh, falls because of shadows that are cast in the wrong places or glare that comes into their eyes. Yeah, on the top of my head, these are the things that you should definitely have. And that could look any way you want it to look because you know what? Uh, style and preferences are related to uh, the individuals, uh, but you can make it look very luxurious, uh, very modern, and still have a very accessible bathroom. So, okay, so, I mean, you mentioned, you know, feelings earlier. So you, good design in, in your mind should, should also be beautiful, shouldn't it? So if, if it makes you feel good, I mean, it's not like a hospital, but you, you don't want to be, <laughs> you don't want to be, you know, thinking that you're, you're at home, but you're actually in the hospital. So that, so, because good design doesn't really cost any more than bad design. In fact, someone told me recently that bad design costs a lot more than good design in, in the medium to long term. Um, so it, it should also be beautiful, shouldn't it? It should also have some sort of ambiance, if that's the right term to use. Definitely. Um, but my, my definition of good design could be a bit different. <laughs> yes, good design should have all of these. Uh, but good design, for me, should be usable, intuitive, um, and it should not be obstructive, you know, funny words to use, but to me, most good designs are invisible. You wouldn't even notice them. Yeah. So if you had something beautiful, you kind of notice it, <laughs> don't you? But good design is invisible because it means that um, if you had to constantly focus on something, it's not good design. It's either if it was your chair, it's not comfortable because you're constantly reminded of the chair. So you should not feel it. It should just support you in life to do what you are doing with it, you know. 
so for old age and, and people with disabilities, it would be this would be about products that are um, that makes them feel like everybody else. You know, products that um, everyone uses, you and I, everyone, and that are not stigmatizing uh, and that are discreetly supportive. Mm, so, okay. yeah. So, so no chandeliers in the bathroom. Huh? Mm, you, you can if you want. That's, that's styling. That's different. You can. But to me, the good design aspect would be if, if there is no glare coming from that chandelier, that's good. <laughs> Okay, that's actually an interesting point. So on that point, so in terms of like, you've done all this research, you've, you've obviously spent some time, you know, writing your results and, and coming up with papers and whatnot and teaching students. What about the industry? When, when you know, we're talking about builders, designers, uh, whatnot, um, specifiers, do you think that perhaps a lot of these, you know, things about fittings, about, you know, the, the issue with glare, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, so common sense, yet yet oh, I'm sure it's overlooked. Do you think that that all the all, all the industry itself, the people who build, who specify, who design, let's say aged care or, or even homes for older people, do you think that they don't really think about this, or it's not, it's not front of mind? Oh, uh, I don't think they. No, I think they do think about it, but I think they are so preoccupied with, by what they're doing, and there's so much to do in this area that uh, maybe some things are slipping, but I, I don't think that it's happening um, a little bit perhaps. But when you think about the other side, when you think about the older people or the people uh, with disabilities that are trying to start a process of getting some renovation happening, I think there's a lot that can, could be done there to support them do that because there's lots of service providers all trying to do the best they can. <laughs> but then how do you coordinate all of that? And it falls onto the shoulders of the homeowners that want to do the renovation. So it's intimidating, I would think, for people to, to start such a journey. It's overwhelming when you look at all the products that are available on the market. How, how would they start? Where would they start? What would they choose? Um, how would they make sure it's the right choice? Uh, are for me, I think, where, where the issues would be. And especially with all the new technologies, you know, how would they know what's right for them? And so they have to rely on what they are told by professionals. And in Australia, luckily, there's lots of support. You know, they can go, they can Google, uh, they can go to yourhome.com.gov.au, they can go to the NDIS website, uh, there's Enable New South Wales home modifications. There's even a little app uh, that uh, has been created to help people start that journey, you know, to, to help people identify a few products to pick, etc. So there's some, some things happening, but it needs more um, coordination to, to ease the burden on the people who have to go through the journey of renovating. This podcast is brought to you by StormTech. For over 30 years, StormTech has been designing award-winning drains that are used worldwide. As an Australian success story, StormTech is the inventor of the linear drain currently used in thousands of applications across the globe. 
using bathrooms, thresholds, driveways, pools and paved areas, storm tank drains are engineered to solve all drainage needs around your home. With seven award-winning grade styles to choose from, StormTech's full range of drains is available in an array of stunning powder-coated colours and electroplated finishes designed to suit any trend or building style. If you want further information, go to www.stormtech.com.au. You teach this at University of New South Wales, don't you? And I've, I noticed that you, you know, you're, you're, you're in the news recently of, uh, for... Uh, yeah, for, for, for some, some, some students who give some rather good designs. Do you think that we should teach this more and more to our architects and, and, and interior designers? Um, across the board, I mean, something in terms of, you know, having this as a component. I mean, as, look, we're all getting older. And as you rightly mentioned, the, the percentage or the, or, the, or, or, or the, you know, the proportional of people over the age of or 60 or 65 is going to increase. So do you think maybe we should be teaching this kind of stuff to, to architects and designers more and more? Definitely. Uh, and we do teach it at UNSW. We, we teach human-centered inclusive design approaches, mm -hmm. as far as I know, um, in, in, in architecture, interior architecture, and in industrial design, and specifically in industrial design because it's one-on-one -on -one interaction with products. And, and I personally discuss a lot about inclusive design, empathy and compassion with my students, you know, every time that I can. Because I think it's important for them to realize that they are not designing for them, themselves now, yep. they are designing for themselves in the future. <laughs> and, and that's important for them to understand and to have a feel for it. So do you think that this could become a bit of a job generator and i ask that only because just recently someone's i, I mean I, we do a lot on sustainability in the magazine and, and you know in the environment and recently someone someone said that you know people will take climate change seriously when, when they can make money out of it uh, do, you, do you think that all this redesign and co-design could act as a job generator in terms of the building sector yeah, I think it could be in, in a good way, hopefully. Uh, it's a bit unfortunate that money makes everything turn, certainly but, does. but that, that's how it is. Um, I would think, yes, new jobs and new businesses. Yeah, why not? Uh, there's a lot of room for professionals um, to be involved at different stages. Um, there's room to design better apps again to, to, to support people through that journey that are already mentioned, um, to help them make better decisions, uh, to help them find the most appropriate products and fittings, you know, among 10 of them, how do you decide which one is appropriate for you? Uh, help them select the best shops or companies, um, help them identify good, reliable, accredited services, service providers, maybe, you know, systems or websites. Um, think about eBay, uh, Uber, um, you know, the way they work by crediting the, the drivers or crediting the sellers. Why can't we credit the service providers? Um, uh, even perhaps if people are so inclined and they have DIY, DIY skills, you know, maybe some short online courses that we could uh, prepare online for them to do certain um, accessibility related renovation things. And they can all generate either small businesses or small jobs for people. 
a flat pack IKEA model of uh, accessible design. There you go. <laughs> I put to say, or, or we could we could get the government to put in a standard which would actually force everyone to do it, whether they like it or not. That um, would be fantastic. I'm Brent Kermelitic, and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews, and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au, where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. And now back to our podcast. You mentioned, we've spoken about design, but you also mentioned technology. Uh, technology plays a big role, and it's playing a bigger and bigger role, isn't it? But um, as technology becomes, I guess, more and more um, uh, applied into this area, do you think that technology will, will, will play an equal design, uh, equal role to design when it comes to age or disability care? Well, technology and design are interrelated. You know, uh, you can't you design according to the technology that is available. So, and, and if you want to really design something that is meaningful, that really has a place and works well, you have to base your uh, concept and ideas on existing technology or perhaps technology that is in infancy, but that will kind of happen and base it on, you know, scientific evidence also that you have. So to me, they will go hand in hand. Mm, okay. So look, at the end of the day, all, all this, you know, design, technology, and, and building for age and simply care. It, it has, obviously, that there are issues of safety, there are issues of, of you know, which, which and, and health, which affect, I guess, the public purse. I mean, you know, you know like, you know, less people going to hospital with broken hips and broken legs and whatnot is, is obviously good for the health healthcare system. But at the end of the day, it also really does impact positively the, the mental health of dignity and the productivity of people. Um, is it not just for those reasons that we should be taking you know, design and co-design in, in, into, into consideration? Yes, I think you, you are spot on. Um, it does. Um, but we, we, we must not forget that um, designing and building wonderful solutions um, that are accessible for all uh, is only half of the story. Um, older people's dreams and social lives are equally important as their health and mobility and uh, and technical solutions can cannot band-aid or um, you know fix loneliness and replace missing social company so i think that co-design has a big role to play there to unpack this because as i already mentioned we are moving towards a very lonely <laughs> way of aging and that's is, that is something we should tackle now because that's our future and i don't want to live in the future being lonely on my own and aged in a very accessible environment <laughs> yeah or you could be like keith richard and, and actually never get old I was oh gonna yes say, <laughs> i was going to say that um that, but on, on that point people are living longer and longer so that that um component or that 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 part of one's life where you're let's say aged or senior or, or or whether you have a disability actually becomes bigger and bigger so that's a real issue in on a whole lot, lot of areas in terms of um not only in terms of the actual people but also in terms of government and, and funding so does that you know 
kind of put a lot of urgency in, in what you in what you when you you do and in what you study? I think yes, it does. It does, um, and there's and it's a complicated um, story because, on the one hand, it's very helpful to to support and and help all these you know people that start living longer. <laughs> In their homes healthier but still you know uh, having ne needing to be supported there's a there's a growing a group of uh, younger people who genuinely care for their aging parents and they will purchase you know all these technological gadgets and devices um, to kind of track their parents uh, or their relatives uh, and to see if they need help you know to to track them from a distance from their jobs but you know in a way it's a good thing but in a way, it's also very intrusive. And um, there's some quite interesting speculative design uh, exercises done around that where they demonstrate uh, some technological gadgets that were designed uh, like a walking cane that will measure you know, how um, many miles you walked during that day or a spoon and a fork that will measure your calorie intake and uh, something what was the other one something that was measuring if you sleep well or not and then your children get all the uh, the data um at the, you you watch the film and you see the poor old man that he's he tries hard at the beginning but then it starts to overwhelm him because his life is not his and him his life anymore it's controlled by his children via an app on the smartphone and that really becomes terrible life for him so he decides to game it and so he gives um some uh, coke and drink to a young boy gives him the cane and ha has has the boy walk the cane for him then he puts weights on his bed so he pretends he's sleeping and then he has two plates one where, where he eats what he wants another one he plays with vegetables with the special uh, technological spoon so you know we, we have to be careful of the futures we are creating um, it's it's quite important and I really want to re-emphasize, I will quote uh, Roger Coleman and Maria Bengtsson that were industrial designers working in this area for many years. They always were talking about designing for older people is designing for our future selves. So we have to imagine the future we want to live in. And that's what we have to make sure it happens. So anything we do should be along those lines be very simple examples that do support us in life but are not intrusive um yeah, uh, yeah. wow uh professor oya Demirbilek, you you must be a great teacher because i've actually learned something thank you very oh. much <laughs> my pleasure um okay well we we might we i'm sure we'll talk to you again so that was professor oya Demirbilek from university of new south wales you've been listening to talking architecture and design until next time goodbye this podcast is brought to you by StormTech. For over 30 years, StormTech has been designing award-winning drones that are used worldwide. As an Australian success story, StormTech is the inventor of the linear drain currently used in thousands of applications across the globe. Used in bathrooms, thresholds, driveways, pools and paved areas, StormTech drains are engineered to solve all drainage needs around your home. With seven award-winning great styles to choose from, StormTech's full range of drains is available in an array of stunning powder-coated colours and electroplated finishes designed to suit any trend or building style. If you want further information, go to www.stormtech.com.au.
I'm Brank Hamalitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.